Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, Enjoying church, the podcast? and world. Let us know. Send a recording or written testimonial to podcast at cbeinternational.org of why Mutuality Matters matters to you, and we may feature you on an upcoming episode. The opinions expressed in CBE's Mutuality Matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of CBE International or its members or chapters worldwide. The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Blake Dean, and I'm here with my co-host, the Reverend Dr. Aaron Monez, and you are listening to New Voices from Mutuality Matters, a podcast hosted by CBE International. This winter's issue of Mutuality Magazine features the theme of Jesus and women. And to deepen this discussion, we've asked New Testament scholar and author, Dr. Lynn Koick, to join us today. Dr. Koick presents presently serves as Provost and Dean of Academic Affairs of Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. She teaches New Testament and is leading the development of a Doctor of Ministry and Master of Arts program in Women's Studies and the Women's Center for Leadership at Northern. She has her Bachelor's Degree from Messiah College and a PhD in New Testament and Christian Origins from the University of Pennsylvania. After 18 years as professor of New Testament and Biblical Studies at Wheaton College, she accepted the invitation to join Denver Seminary as their provost and dean. Dr. Koick has also taught at Messiah College and Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. She is the author of Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the 2nd through 5th Centuries, which I love, as well as Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, and commentaries on Philippians and Ephesians, among many other articles and publications. She contributed a chapter about Jesus and the Samaritan woman in Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women in the Bible. She enjoys preaching from the Bible, teaching on matters pertaining to women's ministry, and exploring issues pertaining to the historical relationship between Jews and Christians. Welcome, Lynn. Oh, so nice to be here. Thank you, Blake, and uh, nice to meet you, Aaron. It's delightful to get your invitation. I look forward to our conversation. And we're so excited, but we must start with first things first. Aaron Monez, what are you watching, reading, or listening to these days? Well, I think this will be the first time I've ever like actually repeated um, something that I'm watching, reading, or listening to. But because, friends, this podcast is... It, is dropping in the season of Advent. And every Advent, I always go back to um, the book Watch for the Light. And it's a collection of different um, Advent uh, daily devotionals that are from everyone from C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther to Kathleen Norris and Doris Day and just like all, or wait, Dorothy Day? Dor- that's what that's one. Dorothy Day. Uh, but it's all yeah, these Doris different people that have, no, 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 no. That's that's a whole other book. Um, but that was no, Pillow Talk, yeah. That would mm. be the, yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is, a, this is one of those uh, books that I come back to again and again, and uh, I love um, just how it sort of enriches that season. But I'm a church calendar person, and I kind of like, doing the same things each year. So uh, that's that's what I'm doing. What about you, Blake? What are you watching, reading, or listening to? 
Yeah, I will note this is your third year using that book, but that's okay. We'll talk about that later. Um, what I am watching right now is called Abbott Elementary, which is kind of like oh, yes. gained a lot of awards. It's kind of a mockumentary style sitcom about an um, underfunded school in um, Philadelphia and the teachers kind of making the best of um, what they're finding there. And I find it to be delightful so and inspiring. It's so good. Lynn, what about you? What are you watching, reading, or listening to? Well, I love hearing what you guys are uh, interested in. Um, I would say I've got a couple of things I'm reading. Uh, Mary Beard, who's a classicist, an amazing author, she has a book called 12 Caesars. And I have to say, I just skipped to the end where she talks about the <laughs> imperial women and looking at how they're portrayed in art. Just find that it. so fascinating. Um, yeah. But in terms of now that we're entering into the Advent season and you were talking about that, my favorite movie, and I watch it every year, is A Christmas Carol, the musical version of it, which I love. Yeah. And sometimes I watch a couple of different versions of it, including the Muppet Christmas Carol, which is classic. It is a classic. Thank you for acknowledging that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I just chill out with um, Brit Box murder mysteries. So Brit box, you know, just, just very simple, stress-free, no blood, no horror. Absolutely. And, and everything's solved in an hour. And it's like, wow, that, I wish my life was like that. So satisfying. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that things like Brit box exist so that we can all get our fill of British television. Um, exactly yes fantastic well wonderful well um friends we are talking about jesus and women because um if you're a subscriber to cbe's publications you will be seeing um their winter issue relating to this topic so we wanted to get um an expert on the podcast to sort of talk about why this is important what does it matter so um my first question lynn is is just thinking about this topic of Jesus and women, I know I grew up in churches where um, women were not mentioned often from the pulpit. We didn't we didn't talk about them. And I mean, at, at times, if they're sort of a central feature of a gospel account or a story, um, we would talk about them, but never in the same way. Like I feel like I learned a lot more about like who Peter was, and everyone you know, everyone always you know, identifies more with. Um, the men in stories than women. So there, there's sort of this trend that I remember growing up with, and, and maybe a lot of our listeners as well. Um, and so what are some of the important things about thinking about Jesus and women um, that you can give us from your scholarship, things that we may have missed, things that, that uh, if we grew up this way, that, that we need to sort of revisit? Yeah, I would say um, one of the key um, key aspects of of your question, or maybe I'll say it this way. One of the things that bothers me the most about this whole topic of women and Jesus is how many times I have heard sermons on how Jesus died alone. All of his disciples Mm. left him, you know, and I think, uh, time out. Actually, (laughs) the women were there at the cross. Like he was not alone. And the gospel of John also indicates that, uh, that there's, the beloved disciple is also present. But I think it just, that is a, I, I think maybe a very telling example of how it, women are just ignored as unimportant. Mm. And so to say he died alone, it may, it, it kind of sets maybe a theological, em, emotional tone, but, mm. but it, it, 
it fails to appreciate the courage that female disciples had. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for the whole church to see these, these women faced, at the very least, harassment by mm -hmm. the Roman soldiers, and they faced, mm -hmm. at the very least, ostracism from their families by standing up for their faith. And so mm -hmm. when, when, we, when we ignore their presence, it's, it's a, a real problem. I would say, again, continuing with the, the scene of the resurrection, when Jesus meets Mary Magdalene as uh, he's raised— and he calls her name. And in that moment, she recognizes who he is. I, I find that to be even uh, representative of how maybe it will be for all of us when the Lord says our name and we suddenly see, as Paul says, not through a glass darkly, but actually mm. face to face. Well, we miss the represent, representative nature of Mary Magdalene's testimony and discipleship when we're not attentive to that possibility, uh, women can model discipleship. And so I think mm -hmm. that's that's really the, uh, uh, I think one of the key things that is missing in our in our preaching is this recognition that women, women are disciples mm -hmm. and they stand as model disciples for us. Mm. Absolutely. I love that account of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Actually, when I got... Yeah. Um, when I got married, I had um, a tie clip that my now wife got me, and it says, I have seen the Lord on the back, because she, she has kind of served as that mm -hmm. model of discipleship, right? That model of faithfulness and attentiveness. Um, I love that. So you kind of talked about um, women being unnoticed in um, like gospel narratives, but what about um, unmentioned women? Why should we care about women who are um, either unmentioned or maybe glossed over even um, in less explicit ways in um, the New Testament accounts. Yeah, I think the uh, it's so it, it's very typical in the time of the first century to only mention what men are doing. I don't mean this in the biblical text. I just mean in general. It's about mm. what uh, so and but you see it in the biblical text. For example, um, when. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Yeah. Matthew mentions to us there's 5,000 men plus women and children, right? But it, because that's what he'd have to say, right? Because just the, the practices of the day, you know, defaulted to just mentioning the men that were present. So what happens is our imagination gets shrunk down and we think that Jesus only hung out with men and he only talked with men and there were only men who were out in public. And, and when you can't see women uh, being faithful and showing their discipleship, um, then it's hard for you today to imagine what that would look like. And so mm -hmm. that's where I think it. we have to use our imagination to repopulate the landscape with women, but we're not doing it as some modernist effort to you know, rewrite the Bible. We're doing it because it was already there, mm -hmm. and the ancient world knew that. It just was the convention that they wouldn't typically mention women and children being present. But we have to, uh, because we're our, our culture is a little bit different. And we typically would say, you know, there were 
these many people who were present, right? And so we would assume it's men and women, they're people there. Um, yeah, so that that is where I would say it. if we can't place the women connecting with Jesus, going about their daily lives, hearing him in the marketplace, then, then we... It's hard for us to imagine today uh, women as disciples. And I don't mean just that women have trouble because no. uh, mm. women are kind of trained. We're kind of trained to, you know, when you hear preaching on Peter or we hear preaching on King David, like women are expected to kind of transpose mm. what that male discipleship would look like into female terms. Um, but it's really important for men also to imagine um like Mary Magdalene as a model disciple and then say, I'm going to follow Mary's example. You know, it's just really important for, for us to imagine both men and women being faithful disciples and showing courage at the key moments in Jesus's ministry and um, passion. I love that you mm use the phrase um, imagination like that is that is an impoverished both we have to utilize our imagination but but we have an impoverished imagination around um, the presence of women and I think that that is perhaps emblematic of critiques that we hear about the church becoming feminized right like we're watching the feminization mm -hmm. of the church but and we we can have so many different conversations about that idea but but at its core, it's an impoverished imagination about what the church has, should, and ought to look like um, as populated and led by both men and women. Um, I really appreciate that. Yeah, there's um, a uh, snipe or a, an attack against the church in the uh, second or third century, so early, very early mm. in church history, um, where uh, the claim was that uh, Christianity is just a religion of women and slaves. Mm. And I think that in a lot of ways, although that was meant very derogatorily, um, that it was probably also true in as much as it was a religion, and it is still a religion that draws people from all social categories and places, including from the margins and draws them into the center. Mm. And, yeah. and I think that, so the feminization, mm -hmm. uh, that's an unfortunate phrase, but I would say that, um, if you think of feminine as, um, having the character traits of compassion <laughs> and welcoming and, um, emotionally connected with others and, um, and, and sharing uh, your story in a, in a vulnerable way and uh, the hospitality. I mean, all of those things are traits that Jesus had. Mm -hmm. And so I want to I call them human traits of godliness rather mm -hmm. than try to label them masculine and feminine. So I think that claim that the church has become feminized is perhaps... Um, a, it, it could be used in kind of a good way uh, to yeah. move us towards particular virtues that um, are actually godly virtues that that uh, God calls us to. Amen. Hmm. Yeah, very well said. Uh, we've 
we've sort of circled around these sort of things multiple times on the podcast, but it always is is worth repeating this idea that there is a reculturing, a reimagination that we have to do because because these sort of subtle ways in which we we don't think how deeply this affects our understanding of our personhood as followers of Christ. Um, this affects us and it and it works on us, especially as, as as women. I know for myself, always having to do that extra step to transpose myself back into what's being said, maybe from the pulpit, um, and remember, like, oh, when they say, um, when you know you're in Christ, you're He is a new creation, you know, and and it's like, oh, but that also means like women too. So it's it, but your brain almost does it so quickly now that uh, that you don't even think about it. But uh, I appreciate you saying that because I think for our listeners, this is also just a, a powerful and important reminder um, that that we have to call these things out and we have to remember that that we shouldn't perpetuate these ideas um, uh, in a way that is is demeaning us in that situation. Let me mention another example, yeah, that I think, I mean, it's right from the Apostle Paul, Romans 8. Uh, And in that passage, he talks about how creation is groaning for the children of God to be revealed. Uh, It's like it's in uh, labor pain and that he calls us to endure, to persevere. Um, And we, we have this solid hope and we must persevere. And in the ancient world, um, the virtue of endurance was seen as a feminine virtue because it was connected with enduring something over which you had no control. And the example Mm. often used by the philosophers of the day was labor, childbirth, where Mm. it seemed to come upon a woman, you know, not being planned and there's not much you can do till the baby's born. You just have to endure labor, right? And so that was seen as a feminine virtue because there was a lack of control. The person didn't have control over what was happening. Whereas a masculine version of of things would be uh, self-control and having command of the situation. And you might endure training like athletic training in order to win a race or something. But the idea of enduring suffering imposed by others on you, like torture in the case of, uh, I mean, that, that sadly was a very brutal time, um, was, was seen as feminizing. But yet for Paul, he rejects that um, worldly view of both Jesus's death and our own discipleship and instead says, we endure faithfully just as Christ accepted the shame of the cross and died on the cross. And and so it becomes a Christian virtue. It's not Mm. mapped on masculine and feminine. And Mm. these are the things that just a careful reading of scripture and an understanding of how it might have sounded to those in the first century helps us today then retrieve, really in this case, it's retrieving the message that Paul had for us. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That's that's so wonderful. And it's, it's just so lovely to be reminded of that. CBE International presents Women in Scripture and Mission. Mikkel, a lovesick teenage princess, strategized to save David's life. In the same way warriors submit to battle plans, David submitted to Mikkel's tactical genius. After she lowered him through the window by her own strength, Mikkel stood courageously before Saul as David fled for his life. Learn more at RadioWomen.org.
Uh, one one thing I want to to ask about is um, in, include your contribution to the Vindicating the Vixens um, book, which we want to give a shout out to Sandra Glenn, who is the editor for that, and all the we have some wonderful uh, pieces in this book um, that uh, a lot of incredible contributors, in, uh, yourself included, and but in this idea of thinking about Jesus and women and realizing that so much of that book is dedicated to helping us understand that a lot of misconceptions about women and about these women in particular um, are found in in sort of this miseducation. And so in your chapter where you where you talk about the encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, you you argue that there is little contextual evidence that she is a adulteress. Um, in fact, historical evidence would lead us to believe otherwise. So I was wondering just first for the sake of being very specific about this, can you talk mm-hmm. about this a bit and explore how our assumptions affect our readings of scripture? Which was mind blowing to me when I read the chapter as well. Like I just was like, oh yeah, I guess that's right. Cause I just always kind of ingested <laughs> Uh, an impoverished imagination about her. Sorry. No, that's all right. I, I don't know if I should apologize for blowing your mind or no. <laughs> putting you in that distress or it was good. Okay. Thank you. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would recommend a friend of mine, Karen Reader, has a new book out, a book length that goes into even more detail oh, um, than the chapter. So I would encourage, I've, I'm now... I feel so bad. I'm blanking on the title, but it's like John four, I think is also in, in the title. I'm sure in your show notes, you'll, you'll have that, but Karen reader. Yeah. Fabulous book. Well, I think a couple of reasons why I, I don't think she's immoral. I don't think she's committed, um, adultery. And one of the main ones is that when she goes back to town, everyone believes, or most of the town believes because of her testimony. And I am unaware of any example in the New Testament where an immoral woman speaks and she's just like, oh yeah, that's right. Totally, totally agree with her. Um, It it just doesn't happen. Um, Even morally upright women are ignored, but you certainly are not going to imagine that a sexually immoral woman is going to be able to preach about the savior of the world and be believed. Hmm. So I think that really, if we follow the um, the storyline, if we recognize the um, you know the the punchline at the end is that the Samaritan village accepts Jesus yeah. as as they call him savior of the world. So hmm. I think that's one thing to. Um, you know, to just uh, reckon with that oftentimes I don't think people focus enough on, but I don't see how, yeah, anyway, I don't see how uh, the story works if she's immoral Mm. from that side. Secondly, um, Jesus talks about her being married uh, five times, and that is an astonishing number. We we may have two or three uh, mar- people being married two or three times, and that you know uh, is sadly common given the high death uh, toll. I mean, people just died a lot for a lot of different reasons <laughs> yeah. at this time. But five, I've there's one person that I know who had that same situation. Actually, he died when he was uh, married to his fifth wife. He had two diver- divorces and two times uh, his 
wives died. So he was a widower twice. And that was um, Agrippa, who was friends of uh, Caesar Augustus. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just don't have this number. So mm-hmm. it's not like Jesus made a good guess. Yeah. It, it's it's remarkable, right? And it shows that he's a prophet, and that's what she hears. Mm. So what really is the sticking point, I think, is when uh, Jesus says, go and ask your husband, and she says, you know, I don't have I, I don't have a husband, and he responds, you're right, the man you have now is not your husband. Um, that people see that as a criticism, but the the possibilities are that she is a concubine, uh, which is not God's best, but was a category in the ancient world for couples coming together where the social um, differences between the uh, husband and the woman that he wanted to be with were uh, distinct enough, far enough apart that they couldn't Uh, create an actual marriage. So Mm. concubine would be the possibility. And um, if that was the case and she was a concubine, then any children that they would have from this relationship would not be the man's heirs. Mm. And Mm. so I wonder if, well, maybe the man was an older man that she's with and he's got grown children and he wants his money to go to them and not to a possible offspring with this new relationship. It is uh, possible that she's with, I don't know, even maybe um, a Roman soldier Mm -hmm. um, who would not technically be allowed to marry while they're on duty, but yet uh, cohabitated. I mean, the thing to recognize in the ancient world is that people set up their their lives um, as we're going to be married. And then often they had a wedding to formalize that and celebrate that. But they didn't get a marriage certificate from the government Mm -hmm. like we have today. And so the documents that they would use would be dowry Mm -hmm. documents. Those would be legal documents. What a woman brought into the marriage, um, that would be recorded. And so I think with this, with the situation that we find with this woman, there are options other than, well, she's just immoral, that explain her situation. It also explains that Jesus never critiques her as being sinful. And yet when Jesus comes upon sin, he is very clear to identify it. And he doesn't hear. In fact, what he says is what you've said is true. And the word true or truth in the gospel of John is always done in uh, a positive light. So the, the text isn't really framed as negative in, in that way. And then finally, I would say that I sometimes think people read the, the story of the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman, and they think Elizabeth Taylor, mm. you know, that she married, <laughs> you know, five, she just this gorgeous woman who, a uh, talented actress, very wealthy. And so mm. she just divorces and remarries all the time. But in the ancient world, women... They may, they had the ability to separate, but they did not have the ability to formalize a divorce in the court. They always had to be represented by a male guardian. Sometimes it actually was their husband. In this case, um, it it may have been, uh, let's say she did divorce uh, someone. 
she couldn't actually do that on her own. She needed to have maybe her uncle or her brother or another male who stood in for that, which means all that to say is this woman wouldn't have had agency in the way that we think of it today to divorce uh, five men. And I don't know of any story where a woman accused of adultery would then be married by another man, or if she's mar- if she's married to uh, the first fella and it and she doesn't produce a child, so then another guy will marry her, and then another guy will marry her, and then another guy will marry her, and then another guy. I mean, you just unless that town happened to be uh, populated by very hopeful men, <laughs> <where> they thought, <laughs> no, I, you know, just I, I think I think I'll be the lucky one. Um, so just trying to understand, and, and I actually, I don't even know if she's barren. We, we, we don't uh, know that. But anyway, there's just, there are, there are um, socially acceptable reasons for her not ma- uh, being married at that moment, which are not God's best, but are nevertheless not seen as immoral in her context. And that is, um, that's what Jesus you know, that's who Jesus meets. It's, there's no, I, I hear a lot that, well, she, she went by herself to the well and that means she's ostracized. And again, that, that's just, there's not evidence to back that, that up. We only say that she was ostracized because we have previously decided that she's an immoral woman, you know? Mm. So she could be going to get the water at noon because, for her neighbor, because her neighbor needed some more, or she's going at noon because, yes, yeah, she went in the morning, but then, you know, the little kid across the street ran ran in through her house and knocked over her jar. I mean, there could be so many reasons for why she's going at noon. The reason we know it's noon is because Jesus is hot and tired, and <laughs> you're usually not hot and tired at 730 in the morning. So that's why it's, it's uh, mentioned. I'll say one last thing. I love reading this story in comparison with the story of Nathaniel at the beginning of John's gospel, at the end of chapter one. You see there a parallel. Um, Jesus knows who Nathaniel is, and Nathaniel is shocked. How, how do you know me when he sees Nathaniel coming? There's a, a um, Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel, how do you know me? You know, well, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Ah, you know, and then he confesses that Jesus is is the king. Mm. And Jesus knows who he is. And in the same way, he knows who the Samaritan woman is in in ways that are socially appropriate. Women were generally understood by their uh, uh, marriages or by their children. So their husbands, their fathers, or their sons, that's how they were identified. Mm. So when she goes back when the Samaritan woman goes back to her town, he told me everything I ever did. It's not that that he recounted sins. It's that he identified her life in a way that no one could have known unless they were a prophet. And and that's that's what she testifies yeah. to. I love that. And I think, I mean, there's, there's often this claim um, from uh, maybe folks who um, read scripture in a particular way that to to recover the stories of these women or maybe to 
to to examine closely some of those kind of quote unquote problem passages for women is to project some kind of cultural bias that we bring to the text onto the text. And I think the thing that I love about both your contribution of Vindicating the Vixens, as well as your other work that I've been able to read is this, this disruption of assumptions, but not solely or primarily in an activistic sense, but rather as a retrieval of the good news of the gospel and um, using textual evidence and historical evidence um, and and kind of coming to the text anew. And that's what I mean when I say that your chapter blew my mind is not in a violent sort of way, right? But in, in a way that makes me go, oh, I have just always assumed that what I was taught on the felt board is what is being found in the text. And I think that that makes me um, a better reader of scripture. That makes me um, a more prayerful and attentive follower of Jesus. Um, and so I, I really appreciate that. If by not recognizing that she's an evangelist, we also miss what I think is the centerpiece of chapter four in John, where Jesus says to his disciples, who, by the way, were in the town, and as far as I know, there was no revival, they come back and Jesus teaches them that the, the harvest is ready, right? The field is mm. ripe for harvest. And she's the evangelist who brings yeah. the harvest in. So that, I mean, that's, that's where we go with all of this, right? Like mm -hmm. that's kind of the, so what, or the therefore of this passage. Mm -hmm. And the more that we focus on her immorality, the less we focus on our charge by Jesus, which is to get out and tell the good news because uh, the fields are ripe for harvest. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Lynn. We hope uh, our listeners have just been taking notes and have just enjoyed all that that uh, we've been learning. We'll have um, a lot of the uh, publications we've mentioned, including a few extras in the show notes for you in case you want to keep uh, thinking about Jesus and women and, of course, be on the lookout um, for the winter issue of uh, Mutuality Magazine, where we have a lot of wonderful articles that will address these topics. And um, thank you again to Dr. Lynn Koch for, for being on the podcast today. And Blake, will you uh, take us out? Sure. But before I do, Lynn, I want to invite you. Is there anything you want people to be on the lookout for that you're working on currently or that you're, um, that's coming down the pike for you? I want to thank both you and Aaron for inviting me on this podcast and uh, appreciate the work that you all are doing. Well, we appreciate it. And thank you listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can hear weekly from our co-hosts and other themes as we continually develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to their website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more resources. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio from past conferences and events. And go visit their bookstore where you can find many talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service to the gospel for all regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. 
We would like to especially thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host Aaron Moniz for Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.